This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Paul Yoon, author of Once the Shore, The Snow Hunters, and The Mountain. He is a recipient of the 5 Under 35 Award from the National Book Foundation and is a Briggs Copeland lecturer at Harvard University. His latest book, The Mountain, is a collection of six short stories that take place around the world, from Russia to South Korea, Shanghai to Spain, France to upstate New York, the characters that inhabit these stories experience loss, loneliness, displacement, and luminous moments. Told in spare, austere style, the tales in the mountain investigate people physically and spiritually on the move. We began by discussing what was haunting Yoon as he wrote the collection. It's sort of a two-pronged answer, but I think the major thing that um, I was thinking of was... Um, and I'll preface this and say that this is not an, an original uh, thought at all. Um, and But I was thinking about lately how much uh, access we have to events throughout the world, in particular violent events, um, because of, say, social media like Twitter or something. We can kind of hear about, you know, a terrorist attack instantly or even something smaller than that, uh, something, you know, domestic or something more intimate within a household. So I was sort of thinking about this idea of like how much access we have and how easily we can access these things. And I want to sort of tackle that in some way in book form. And rather than sort of the obvious route, which would have been sort of, oh, this idea like, oh, we're all connected. I thought it'd be more interesting to simply write a book that was set around the world, like sort of a global book. And Stories seem to be a good way to do that or an interesting way to do that. So that's basically how the book started, which is that I wanted to conceive of a book that was set in as many places as possible without having it be sort of, you know, messy or chaotic or kind of felt like jumbled in some way. I'm curious about your interest in in violence because it's something that I noted and I wrote down that in several of your stories there's personal violence it's Mm -hmm. usually one person hitting one person was hitting someone someone attacked another character out of the blue hit someone with a shovel and I just wanted to ask you about that and if you want to talk about it in context of each story we can or if you want to talk about it more generally you know, there are these sort of, you know, personally, there were these moments where I would wake up and, you know, turn on the news or listen about something, and I'm watching, you know, violent events unfold live on television. Um, and I was watching this stuff, and again, whether it's, you know, whether it's a war or, or something else, whether it's gun violence in this country, I was sort of watching this, and I wasn't entirely sure how I was processing it, you know, and sort of I started thinking about how how shocking that was to me that I was able to sort of view this and equally shocking that I wasn't really sure how to process the fact that I was viewing it and had this kind of intimate access to it. Um, and it, it literally just got me thinking about just sort of how everyone else is processing, processing all this, whether, you know, these are people my age or whether they're older or even children, right, who can sort of access all this stuff online and think about it, you know, and watch it on TV. So I think in that way, in a more sort of general way, I think violence was on my mind. Um, while I was writing these stories. And it's so it just so happened that, like, there are these sort of um, moments in these stories. 
story that sort of hinge on a moment of violence because of that. Sometimes they seem to come out of nowhere. Other times I understand them. But for instance, in in your second story in the book, which is called Still a Fire. Still a Fire. Yeah, exactly. There's this woman, and her name is Kareen, and she yeah. she was a a nurse, and she was helping out in a hospital, and she got addicted to morphine, and she left the hospital with a patient and ended up under the care of this man named Emil. And they are out, I think they're in a dump, uh, looking for things, and all of a sudden right. he starts hitting her. She did ask him a question, but basically, you know, she said kind of what was your life before this? Right, right, right. And I was shocked. I just, he had been taking care of her. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about this moment where this caregiver kind of turns on this person. Yeah, absolutely. And in some ways that has nothing to do with her. Um, it's, It's sort of this repressed violence that's sort of within him, but it's sort of, you know, my hope was that in that moment, there's a boiling point that's been reached because of the long history of the Second World War in France and all the all that these characters have gone through. And in some ways, you know, Emile, Kareem, Mikhail, all the all the characters in that story, they have yet to sort of process the years that they have survived and gone through. And they've reached this point where um, they've each reached this point in that story where they're confronted by a kind of crossroads where they can step one way or step the other way. And in that moment, I think when he sort of senses this woman who has been caring for him, I think he senses that um, she actually might have the power to leave him, you know, and is challenging him in some way. He sort of is presented in this crossword where he can sort of accept that or do something else about it. And he ends up doing something else about it, but it's sort of translated into a kind of horrific way. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Paul Yoon, author of The Mountain. I felt like a lot of your settings took place after tragedies. So they were a lot to me. They were the aftermath. They were after the war. They were after a missing parent. They were after a divorce. They were sort of in that. I wouldn't say they were totally like a liminal space, but they were like just off of precipices. Do you think that's yeah, fair? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely fair and accurate to say, um, which leads me to the second sort of part of your original question, which is, you know, the sort of seed of this book, which is that um, I was coming at this book from sort of a great place of transition. You know, my, my wife's a fiction writer as well. And so for many years, we've been kind of like hopping around various locations because of um, day jobs, right? Looking for work, making money. You know, we would uh, go somewhere, unpack our things and try to do our day jobs and try to write our books. And then we'd finish whatever job that was. And, you know, most most of the times it was teaching and our contracts would be up and we'd pack up, right? And move somewhere else again. And it made me think of, like, that's sort of been my history. I grew up in a kind of peripatetic life where my dad um, who's a retired doctor, um, he was sort of hopping around hospitals in the New York area. And so we, we moved often and I was never at home. I never felt at home anywhere um, because we were moving around so much. Um, and so I was thinking about all this. And when I was given the opportunity to write this book, I was coming at it from a place where I was constantly mo- in motion, constantly moving, thinking about 
the places I've left, where we end up, why we leave, right, why we flee, and what we search for. Your thought about sort of aftermath and, and a kind of state of limbo, right, or a liminal space, is that I think the echo of that was that I was interested in sort of migratory patterns, and trauma or the aftermath of trauma became sort of the gateway or the, or the, the door for these people to physically move somewhere whether they're fleeing or looking for, you know, a new place to settle or or a new family. I felt like a lot of these characters were searching for something that was missing. It was a lost French mother or a Korean boy who disappeared or a search for a husband. Do you think that search is innate to these other things you were looking at? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just sort of um, I'm sort of interested in this idea of do we ever feel whole, right? So, and if we don't ever feel complete or whole, then then what is that sort of piece of us that's missing, right? And is it is it is it something that we're searching for? Um, are we aware that we're searching for it? So, oftentimes they may physically be, you know, or literally be missing someone or something. But I think it also sort of speaks to something more, you know, like philosophical or psychic. When you literally get down to writing these stories, when you had all these questions on your mind about violence and loneliness and migration, you know, then you write these these stories that are they're tangible and they they have characters and they have settings and and they are, you know, they take place in in upstate New York and uh-huh. in China and um, in Scotland. And how do you end up taking, you know, these ideas and actually putting the pen to a paper to create a story? Do you start with an image? Do you start with a character? I start as small as possible. And whether that's an image or a sentence, Um, It has to be very, very small. It has to be a baby step and, you know, microscopic. I think if I entered fiction writing solely thinking about sort of a theme or an idea, which is, you know, obviously what we've been talking about um, right now, I think I would sort of crumble and fall apart at the kind of enormity of that. Uh, It would be too much pressure, right? So the trick to writing for me is actually you do have ideas, right? You do have thoughts when you want to conceive of some, you know, a book project or a story, but uh, you have to sort of trick yourself into not thinking about it when you start writing and to just simply start very, very small. And so, for example, the first story at Willow and the Moon was the first story I wrote for this book. And the only thing I was sure of in that book was that there was a building in the, in a mountain. That was it. So that's how I conceived of the first sentence, um, which is it was once a sanatorium in the mountains. Um, and that was all I knew. Um, had no idea it was going to be set in, you know, the first half of the 20th century um, until well uh, into the story. Um, no idea who the characters were, no idea, you know, like whether, you know, who the family members were or anything like that. And this story is told from first person about a young boy whose yeah. mom worked at the sanitarium up in yeah, exactly. upstate New York. And he would go with her. It was after the war. She would take care of people who um, injured people, maybe physically, maybe mentally Mm -hmm. injured. 
and and his father kind of disappeared and we follow this character as he remembers his mother and moves on to other places and comes back so yeah. he he has the loss of his his mother who gets addicted to morphine and then the father who disappears you know it's in in this sort of way that completely surprised me and I wasn't aware of um it became the map of the book um where it it was sort of it was it's it's the it's the story that sort of it's the epicenter, right? So, and then from from there, like the book branches out. So, all the for me, all the whether they be themes or images that recur throughout the book, right? Um, the sort of you know the motifs um, and the, the the idea of migration and travel um, and loss. It's all sort of in that in that um, in that story for me. So, that became a kind of lovely surprise, and also a great comfort um, because I'd sort of, you know, when you're sort of lost in a book project, you need those anchors. So it was a story I often returned to and sort of relied on. Yeah, I could see that it could set the stage. So in this, the main character goes back later to the sanatorium to just explore where he spent time with his mom and to mourn. And then he meets a stranger there and we find a lot of the people in in these stories meet strangers and they it might be a short meeting like you had a a, a woman who went on a train trip with a man right. she met at her hotel or a woman who was working in China who met up with uh the man who got her to China from Korea or the right, man, right. um and that sort of thing so i felt like meeting with strangers was something that repeated a lot and I guess that is inevitable in the migrant life that you're going to meet strangers but I'm wondering if uh-huh. you can comment on that yeah I think this also comes from personal experience um, you know whether I'm traveling I was fortunate enough to be able to travel a lot when I was younger um, or even sort of on a day-to-day level I find moments with strangers to be quite magical you know whether that's just saying hi to someone as I'm running because you know, we happen to run at the same time, right? So we wave to each other. Or doing the classic backpacking of pressure when you're a teenager in the 90s and, um, you know, staying at a hostel and staying up all night with someone um, talking, knowing that you'll never see that person again. Those sort of moments have always stayed with me and they continue to stay with me. So I think for me, the the, the idea of that kind of short and yet lasting connection uh, with people throughout the world you know, who go about living their own lives and kind of branch out and splinter out everywhere geographically. That's a beautiful thing to me. So I think about that often. And so I think that kind of came, that sort of translated into the book as well. Um, But it also sort of ties in with loneliness, right? Um, I think for these characters, they are lonely, but I think they're also, they feel slightly kind of uh, disconnected, like they're unable to sort of connect with anyone. And so they latch on to these sort of surprise moments with strangers, these passing moments. Yeah. And it's it can be so easy to sort of love a stranger because nothing gets complicated with strangers. Exactly. Exactly. Again, to go back to your saying about sort of uh, the aftermath of trauma, right? I think there are a lot of events, whether they're intimate or world events, that these characters sort of have not processed. And so Oftentimes, when they're like faced with this opportunity to process it, it leads to kind of horrific violence because you know they don't know what else to do. Um, but it's also, I think, in line with this sort of idea where here's someone that I can kind of latch onto for a moment 
and sort of feel safe with. Not to talk about Willow uh, for too long, but all of that was there in that first story. I'm fully aware of like the, the, the crazy sort of white space and air of that story, right? I sort of let a lot of things linger in the space breaks and the, and the white, the pages where, you know, years pass and I don't explain what happened. And I knew it was kind of a kooky, crazy thing to construct a story where I'm doing this stuff, where I'm letting so many things not reveal themselves. And yet I just I just sort of had a feeling that it was an okay thing to do for um, this project. And so it gave me the courage to continue to do that as the book progressed, where what's not said in the white space. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Paul Yoon, author of The Mountain. One of the things I noticed with a lot of these it was rare in the stories. I mean, it wasn't exclusive, but it was rare that we learned the narrator's name. In a way, this is like they're a stranger to us as the reader. But I'm wondering about the choice to not name these people, if it was a choice or if it was just how it happened. I think it was how it happened. Um, it wasn't something that I was sort of thinking about for the first person stories. Um, the first uh, the first story and the last story in Mulner Field, the narrators aren't named. It wasn't something I was aware of. I wrote these stories, and I realized only until um, I had finished, um, you know, a full draft that I was satisfied with that I had never named them. Um, and and I let it be. Um, I let it be because I sort of liked the idea. You know, there's it's being it's it, you're sort of towing this line between you know wanting kind of clarity and then anger and. Um, you know, reaching too far into sort of abstraction, right? So I knew I was kind of towing this line where I didn't want I, I didn't want it to be a frustrating experience for the reader, right? Um, but I did sort of like this idea that if I didn't name the narrator, what what would that uh, how would that experience change to the reader, and how would that experience add or complement this world I was trying to build, where you have so many sort of voices all throughout the world you know, singing all at once, so to speak. And that was an interesting idea for me. And what do you think you you uh, gain or lose with an actual name? Well, for this particular book, I think if I had named the characters, I wondered if it was going to put them in a very, very specific room in sort of like the house house building and... For me, I almost wondered if it would be better if I let that voice sort of be able to move around different rooms in the house, so to speak, in an almost kind of fluid way uh, or almost like ghost-like way. And that was something that was intriguing to me. Um, in terms of loss, I think, you know, you know you're in danger of um, letting those voices float away, right, and, you know, escape out the window. Um, and so, you know, whether I succeeded or not, that's, you know, that's up to, that's up to the readers. Um, but my hope is, um, I was able to sort of stay in the house that I had built, but have that fluidity as well. The other thing that I, I found in your story is what you, you literally had a lot of empty houses on mountains. Yeah. yeah. Did you, did you ever explore an empty house as a kid or what was the either metaphor or real thing? I actually have no idea. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, I explored empty houses as a kid. Um, there was a there for a few years we lived, um, you know, um, in in a, in a town in upstate New York, and uh, we lived on this hill. And um, 
the the we were on a slope of a hill and and at the at the crest you know at the peak uh there was a there was always this house that was like i felt like it was forever being constructed and it was empty um and it was like a sort of uh you know exposed frame and all that so yeah i mean i explored it often um i don't know how much you know i who's to say i can't say how much i was thinking of that memory um when i was writing this book um it's funny how sometimes, you know, things sort of pop up in, in fiction that you're aware of and other things pop up that you're just not aware of at all, right? That isn't intentional. I think empty spaces and abandoned spaces um, lend itself well to this book, um, simply in terms of like thinking about, you know, migration and sort of leaving and abandoning something, but also, again, like this sort of the idea of destruction and physical destruction, whether that's sort of in the aftermath of a war where you have sort of a ravaged country or simply just like the aftermath of, of a personal life and a, and a, and a sort of like a life that one is sort of fleeing. Right. And so the, the pieces of wreckage there were interesting to me, but more interesting to me was actually someone finding the evidence of a wreckage that wasn't theirs. Right. So Colleen and still a fire ends up in an abandoned kind of ruined cottage in the Pyrenees at the end of that story, it's not her wreckage, right? It's not It's not something that she did. It's someone else's. And so that was interesting for someone to occupy someone else's abandoned space. And she ended up also kind of with a stranger there, similar to the first one, who was a, a child. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this, in kind of thinking about, you know, how do we start anew? How do we start again? So they occupy this place that's ruined but they'll build it again, right, and make it their own. And, you know, chances are, in sort of the vision of this book, it's not the it's not the last place they'll end up, right? They'll probably move again, or she'll move again. They'll, you know, there's the hope of staying and settling, but most likely, most likely that won't happen. So, you know, these kind of layers and patterns and threads of what we leave behind, what we abandon, and then what, what who do we find, what do we find, right? You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Paul Yoon, author of The Mountain. Can you read something from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I'm going to read to you from an early novel by Michael Ondaatje called In the Skin of a Lion. That's essentially um, the predecessor to uh, The English Patient, where some of the characters from The English Patient first appear. And I'm actually just going to read the first two paragraphs of In the Skin of a Lion. If he is awake early enough, the boy sees the men walk past the farmhouse down First Lake Road. Then he stands at the bedroom window and watches. He can see two or three lanterns between the soft maple and the walnut tree. He hears their boots on gravel. Dirty loggers, wrapped up dark, carrying axes and small packages of food, which hang from their belts. The boy walks downstairs and moves to a window in the kitchen where he can look down the driveway. They move from right to left. Already they seem exhausted before the energy of the sun. Sometimes he knows this collection of strangers will meet the cows being brought in from a pasture barn for milking, and there will be a hushed politeness as they stand to the side of the road, holding up the lanterns. One step back and they will be in a knee-high snowdrift to let the cows lazily pass them on the narrow road. Sometimes the men put their hands on the worn flanks of these animals and receive their heat as they pass. 
they put their thin gloved hands on these black and white creatures who are barely discernible in the last of the night's darkness. They must do this gently, without any sense of attack or right. They do not own this land as the owner of the cows does. Tell me about choosing this. What what moved you? Oh, God, so much. Um, the first thing that I love about this is I love the way this uh, excerpt has so many layers to it. If you reread it, you're gonna, you'll notice the way the boy sees things is, is separated into different categories where he wakes up first and then he moves to the bedroom window and then he inches downstairs. So there are these steps to his sort of view of what's going on. I love the way that sets up a book that essentially has multiple layers in it and how each sort of point of view that the boy experiences reveals something different. Um, about the loggers and the cows. Um, so there's that. I love the way it's moving, right, within the house. Hornachi is so great at this, um, these sort of moments of surprise for me where um, you're sort of, you're witnessing a scene and then there's this gesture of surprise. Um, something happens that surprises me. And um, when the men sort of step back and let the cows pass, there's this moment when they put their hands on the warm flanks of the animal and receive their heat. And to me, that was such a surprise. I wasn't expecting that gesture. I would have thought that they would have just kind of stepped back and kind of and and let the animals pass and not touch them, but they do. And there's this kind of moment of sort of magic there for me um, and connection. So I love that. And of course, I love at the end these people. They do not own this land, right? As the owner of the cows does. So these people, the loggers, they are not of this place, right? They're they're, they're passersby, and, and it is not their home. So there's a sort of a that that's obviously um, something that speaks to me as well. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft, or something that you just like. The whole book was hard, so I don't think we have time um, for me to read the entire book. But what I will do is I will actually just read um, the opening of Willow in the Moon. Um, it was once a sanatorium high up in the mountains. My mother worked there. In the summers, I woke with her early and took the wooded trail near our home. She brought us breakfast, usually some bread with cold jam and butter. And halfway up the slope, we found a spot where the view and rested. In the valley, there was a town and a distant river. On some days, we could see the train come up in the city, blowing smoke into the sky. South of this was our house and the horse farm my father was employed by. Sometimes I could even see my father across a paddock. I recognized this strange gate from when a horse kicked his hip before I was born. He came from a family of farriers. The house was one we rented from a wealthy Dutchman whom I never saw. It had four rooms on one floor. Our most valuable possession was a piano my mother owned. She used to play before the First War. She had come to America to perform in a concert hall in Manhattan. Her name was Josephine. She was from France. Tell me about that. It was literally the first um, two paragraphs that I wrote for this book. Um, and I think I think about it often because I had absolutely no idea what, uh, where I was going with this. Um, and, uh, and so uh, it felt both dangerous and uncertain. And I was writing it in a time sort of great. You know, I just felt sort of uncertain about everything in terms of this book. I was going very slowly and carefully. And I think it lent itself to us in an interesting voice where there is a kind of slowness to it that's sort of reflective of that. It's also um, it was tricky for me because it was first person, um, which I 
I don't often write in. And so there was a, I felt kind of vulnerable writing in the first person. Um, I knew it wasn't me. You know, obviously it wasn't me. Yet I'm, I'm typing I. So part of it felt like it was me. And so I felt, uh, I felt a bit more exposed writing this, I should say, than, um, than sort of stories that are in the third person. And, you know, why that is, I'm not entirely sure. But, uh, but there was definitely that. There was a kind of fragility to it, too. And then, I, you know, as, as you sort of warm up to it uh, and the voice, the armor kind of comes back on and you feel more confident. And then, of course, you finish it and get stripped away. And writing is a total roller coaster in that way. <laughs> Where do you write? Uh, good question. Well, I wrote this book in an office um, at the New York Public Library, which was the first time I ever had an office. Uh, my wife and I had moved around so much that uh, I have no consistent place. Uh, to write. Um, I sometimes write on the dining table. I sometimes write on a couch and sometimes in an office. So uh, it's never consistent. I'm kind of constantly moving around, which used to infuriate me. And now I find it interesting in that your point of view is always slightly altered when you're writing. And so it lends itself to sort of interesting um, things on the page, I think. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I run every morning. It's sort of that one thing I need. Running is interesting to me. It feels that once like you're running away from something, but also coming back to whatever it is. I need that morning run. If I'm if I'm wrestling with something, you know, whether it's a short story or a novel I'm working on, uh, I take off running and there's that moment where I need to shed that frustration. And then you get to that point where you have a blank slate again and you kind of start wrestling with whatever it is that's... Um, that's been troubling you, you know, whether it's a particular scene or, or you know, a structure, a structural level or something like that, or a character. And within, you know, that moment when I'm running, not always able to figure it out, but um, I, I can sort of figure out sort of steps to making it better. And then I come back home and sort of with, with uh, renewed energy and strength. So that's sort of, that's my, that's my ritual. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show my work to three people. Um, my wife, um, who always reads early drafts of my work. Um, my agent, who I usually show my work to around the same time as my wife. Um, they're they're uh, definitely first readers of mine. And um, a dear friend of mine, uh, the fiction writer Ethan Rutherford, um, who has been a reader of mine uh, for, oh God, I don't know, over 15 years. So uh, he's been, you know, having to read my, you know, crappy drafts for a long time, so. <laughs> and how have you dealt with rejection? In terms of uh, when I was first starting off and sending out stories to magazines, I would get those, you know, those form rejection letters. And a um, great way for me to uh, deal with it was I, I kept all the form letters, um, all the stuff in a file folder, and the pile would just start, you know, piling up, and they would get, like, thicker and thicker. Um, and then I would move on. I had a hard time selling my first book, um, Once the Shore. So, like, I have a, I had a piles and piles of, you know, rejection letters from publishers, too. So, you know, I don't know if it's a masochistic, but it, it, it actually helped me deeply to sort of have that pile. It didn't depress me. It didn't uh, discourage me at all. Uh, it just simply made me want to keep going. So those physical artifacts of the rejection letters were actually uh, quite necessary for me to keep going. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word is whatever word that works in the sentence that I'm working on. So I guess if I'm working on a sentence, like, less, like say, well, yesterday night I was writing, and I wrote a sentence I was really pleased with. 
whatever word that made me very pleased with that sentence is my favorite word, so it's ever-changing. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Paul Yoon, author of Once the Shore, The Snow Hunters, and The Mountain. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.